0: All right, Uh, so the last thing we're gonna do tonight is look at the New Testament revelation regarding the Davidic promise, the Davidic kingdom. Uh, And we're going to start in Matthew, whose theme is really Jesus Christ, the King of Israel. And uh, Matthew was one of the earliest uh, gospels written. Uh, either Matthew or Mark was written first, uh, sometime in the 50s AD, possibly as late as 60 AD. Uh, but these were the first Gospels, uh, and as the Apostles were, be, uh, were being uh, eliminated one by one, uh, it became necessary for these firsthand witnesses to be written down, but Matthew uh, one uh, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, one of the disciples, only two disciples, wrote a gospel. Um, Luke wasn't a uh, disciple, and Mark was a disciple of Peter. Um, Matthew was Levi, Matthew, and uh, of course, uh, the apostle John uh, was the other. But Matthew has a very specific audience, and he has a very specific purpose for writing this gospel. His purpose, unlike the Gospel of Luke, is not to give us a chronological view of Jesus Christ's life on earth. He is developing a theme, which is the kingdom of God. He is explaining to the Jews who missed their Savior where the kingdom is. That if Jesus Christ was the messianic king, why isn't the messianic kingdom here? He's explaining that issue to them, Uh, so that's what we're going to look at as we look at how the book of Matthew develops. Is Matthew's revelation to the unbelieving Jews of how this man could be the Messiah, but fail to live up to their messianic expectations of him bringing in the messianic kingdom. What Matthew tells them is the kingdom has been postponed because of your faithlessness, but it will be. Given to a later generation of Israel who will be faithful. So here we see uh, right from the very beginning of Matthew in chapter one uh, that Matthew identifies Jesus as the Messiah because that is his argument. Jesus is the Messiah. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, In Matthew chapter four, we see what Jesus' message was. The message was promising this kingdom of heaven to Israel. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is hand. Um, Notice he is not saying, repent, for I have come offering personal salvation on the basis of my death, burial, and resurrection, because that is not this gospel. That gospel is preached by the apostles after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This gospel that he came preaching was a gospel specifically for Israel, not for personal salvation, but for the kingdom promised in the Old Testament. We can't dislocate this term kingdom from its Old Testament prophecies or from the audience receiving this. The audience receiving this had never heard of the church, and it was three years from ever being heard about. The church did not exist and was not even conceived of by any man at this point when Jesus Christ came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first century Jews in Israel would have understood this to be exactly what the Old Testament described the kingdom to be. That clears up issues like in Matthew 10, where some wonder, why did God offer salvation only to Israel and not to the rest of the world? The short answer to that is he didn't. He offered the kingdom of Israel to Israel alone and not to anyone else. Jesus' audience for this book and for this statement was Israel. These 12, his 12 apostles, Jesus sent out after instructing them do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is not offering personal salvation. He's not saying don't offer salvation to any Gentiles uh, on the basis of faith alone in me as their um, satisfactory payment for their sin debt. No, he's saying, go tell Israel their king is here. But Jesus was rejected as the king, and this is why his public ministry of miracles ended early on in his uh, his ministry, and he began doing private miracles on the basis of faith alone. He began training the disciples to be the heads of the church, and he began uh, developing what the church would be only after Israel formally rejected him as the promised king. So in Matthew 12, we see that event take place. This is the third of three uh, messianic miracles that Jesus Christ uh, performs in order to prove his messiahship, and that is the exorcism of a mute, demon-possessed man, So here in Matthew 12, it says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? What were these people asking? They were saying, This man can't be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, can he? And the Pharisees, hearing this, said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. They say, no, this man is not using the power of God to cast out demons, but the power of Satan. They are rejecting his claim to be Messiah. They are rejecting his claim to be the king. They are rejecting the kingdom that he has promised. And this is the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin, I think we've I think we did this in our group. It might've been another group. Uh, the unpardonable sin, every church you go to, every denomination you hear from has a different belief as to what the unpardonable sin is. I've, I've heard everything under the book and I'm not even that old. Um, the unpardonable sin has a context in the book of Matthew and it can't be stripped from its context because a, a, uh, a text apart from its context is a pretext Uh, and we can't make any sense of it if we dissect this and try to make it something that fits our church doctrines rather than the argument that Matthew is building through the book of Matthew. The unpardonable sin is a result of the rejection of the messianic king when he comes to offer the kingdom to Israel. Any other pattern doesn't fit. So he says here, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit, the Spirit, the power by which Jesus Christ performed the Messianic miracles, shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. The result of the unpardonable sin was that Israel would undergo the judgment of 70 AD. Uh, Not ironically, 40 years exactly after the unpardonable sin was committed, Jerusalem was destroyed. Um, And the Jews could not escape this judgment on the nation, though they could escape the personal effect of this, Uh, by turning to Jesus Christ as that Messiah. And in fact, there was an incredibly large amount of um, Jews. I think it was 140,000 or 400,000 even um, of Messianic believers who left Jerusalem in 67 AD, uh, just prior to the destruction of Israel. So that those who came to believe personally in Jesus Christ Um, and abandoned their nation in doing so, did not undergo this judgment of 70 AD. But those who continued to reject Jesus as the Messiah uh, were all killed um, in 70 AD in Jerusalem, in the sack of Jerusalem by um, Titus Vespasian. Uh, So in Matthew 23, a couple chapters after uh, this rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messianic king, And right before Jesus Christ is about to be formally rejected uh, by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priest, um, and also all the people in Israel. This is his uh, formal rejection by the people, his trial, uh, and subsequent crucifixion. Here's the last thing he says publicly to all these people uh, before the... uh, before the Olivet Discourse in Matthew twenty-four and twenty-five, and he's speaking to the Pharisees who have rejected him as the king, and then caused all the people of Israel to reject him as well because of their lies. Now, the Pharisees were the the movers and shakers of Israel. They were the uh, not so much even the thought police. They were the the uh, they were the cool megachurch next door that. Uh, got everyone excited but taught terrible doctrine um, so it says here in Matthew twenty three thirteen, Jesus speaking to these Pharisees woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people for you do not enter in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in so his specific woe and this is one of seven woes that he presents to these Uh, Pharisees the very first one is that they have shut up the kingdom of heaven because they have rejected the king and caused the others to reject the king as well Um, so Jesus laments over Jerusalem he says Jerusalem Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling behold your house is being left to you desolate again, a reiteration of the, um, of the consequences of the unpardonable sin. Uh, For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is a messianic uh, form of address uh, from Psalm 126, uh, that the messianic king would be greeted by this phrase, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. Uh, now, this comes just shortly after the uh, the triumphal entry where they did um, cry out Psalm 126 as he was entering into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And if you're anything like me, when you read that passage, but read it either not in context or not fully understanding what was happening, you wonder why is Jesus Christ sad that everyone is calling him the king, which he claimed to be, and that's because they had already committed the unpardonable sin. They had already committed themselves to the judgment of 70 AD, uh, and many of those people were looking for a a king to come and save them from the Romans uh, by establishing the kingdom, and Jesus Christ would have done that, But he would first have to be confirmed as their king spiritually before he could become one um, physically. They would have to accept him as the savior, not just just a military victor. They had to accept him as God, not just a ruler. In Matthew 22, um, and this is more just just a bit of... uh, looking at Jesus Christ as the Davidic descendant, uh, not so much looking at that uh, thrust of Matthew talking about the postponement of the kingdom, but uh, in our context of David, he makes an interesting statement in Matthew 22 when he's being tested and tried uh, by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, and the scribes. So they... um, it records the the event here. It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And this is after they've been asking him a bunch of questions. He's responding here and says, okay, let me ask you a question. What do you think about the Christ, the the Messiah, the anointed one? Whose son is he? They said to him, he's the son of David. So they understood that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Um, so first, it's kind of fun to watch Jesus shut them up with a quick and easy question. Um, but we could answer this, couldn't we? We understand that Jesus is the God-man, that he is David's Lord because he is God, and he is David's son because he is the direct descendant of David, as promised in the Davidic covenant who would take the throne. Um, So we understand this, whereas the Pharisees obviously either did not understand this um, or did not want to admit this because uh, they... They didn't have so much an issue with Jesus Christ calling himself the son of David, so much as his calling himself the son of God. That's where they took issue, and because he called himself the son of God, they couldn't have what they considered a blasphemer, um, being the Davidic descendant. They anticipated a Pharisee to be the Davidic descendant. All right, we'll look at one more of the Gospels and then how uh, Paul treats this issue of the Davidic Covenant in Acts. So looking in Luke 1, uh, we see the angel said to her, that is to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So here we have almost a direct repetition of the Davidic covenant. So this angel comes telling Mary, your son is the one whom this was speaking about. Whoever you bear is going to be that fulfillment. Uh, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. This is what the Pharisees didn't believe. They did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Thus, how could the Son of David also be his Lord? So we see that Jesus does fulfill this seed promise. Uh, A little further forward in Luke chapter 1 uh, verses 68 through 70, uh, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us and that is uh, Old Testament prophet language but one that I didn't use for this the horn of salvation. Um, In the house of David his servant as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. They understood that this was the fulfillment of the Davidic promise prophesied in the Old Testament. We cannot strip the New Testament from its Old Testament context. Paul does an excellent job of framing Jesus Christ in, its old, in his Old Testament context, and this is on Paul's first missionary journey, and we see his uh, aptitude for preaching. And we also can look at his tactics for preaching. Um, He develops themes through historical reference. Um, So here Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, men of Israel, first I should mention, this is in Antioch. Um, There were two primary schools of interpretation uh, in first century up through the third century, and that was Antioch and Alexandria. Um, The school of Antioch, which is probably this very uh, very synagogue that he's teaching in, uh, would develop and become the school of Antioch. They believed consistently in a literal interpretation of scripture. So what Paul is doing here is exemplary of the way that they would continue to teach for hundreds of years. The school of Alexandria came along later and added an allegorical interpretation to scripture. They followed the Greek form, not the Jewish form of interpreting scripture, Uh, a a form that doesn't doesn't appreciate that it is divinely written um, by God for our understanding, Uh, that God being a God of language, a God who created language and created man to understand language, communicates with man in a literal, um, understandable fashion. Uh, They look at it all as uh, fables. So in the School of Alexandria, you have people like Origen um, developing a, uh, a allegorical method of interpreting scripture, and you have influenced by Origen men like Augustine of Hippo, who basically becomes the father of covenant theology. Uh, I think it was John Calvin said that every thought he has himself could be summed up in the writings of Augustine. Uh, that he has essentially no disagreements whatsoever with Augustine, and Augustine's method of interpretation was completely contrary to Calvin's. Calvin came and rescued the literal interpretation from the uh, from the Catholics, who basically destroyed any um, evidence of Scripture being taken literally for over a millennium. Um, so honestly, it it just seems like uh, like. Uh, Calvin maybe didn't fully understand Augustine or maybe had a limited reference to, uh, to what Augustine wrote, but uh, nonetheless, the reformers had great uh, reverence for Augustine and Augustine just simply put was a terrible, terrible theologian. Uh, there are very few things I think he got right. Uh, and that's because he followed an allegorical method of interpretation, not a literal one. Uh, but anyways, that's a side story. Um, Here, Paul is teaching at the synagogue in Antioch, uh, which became very important later in church history. And here's what he said. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So notice how Paul, when he goes to Antioch to preach to the Jews that are outside of the land of Israel, what does he do he gives them their whole historical context and says look how god was faithful here 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 and look how he fulfilled this literally he promised he would do this and he did it now look at jesus christ he promised he would do this and he did it uh, so that's what paul is doing here is he's building up um, through historical reference god's faithfulness and literal um, fulfillment of prophecy and then he's pointing to jesus christ and saying look, this is the man that God has been pointing to through our entire history. Don't miss him. All right. Dealing with uh, this other issue that I brought up earlier and haven't yet uh, fully fleshed out is that uh, Jesus Christ is not currently on David's throne. He is sitting at the right hand of God's throne. There are two thrones, a universal throne, which is God's throne that he sits on. And a throne that God created over this earth to be ruled by a man, and He originally installed Adam to fulfill that position, and Adam failed. So the rest of Scripture has been, uh, has been the, uh, the efforts of God, for lack of a better word, um, to bring about His purposes on this earth. I think it was Charles Ryrie who said. Uh, that God cannot fail to fulfill what he seemingly failed to fulfill uh, in this realm. Uh, That's a terrible paraphrase, but basically, at this point, it appears that God's purposes with Adam failed uh, because of the serpent in the garden. That can't be. God must have a man on the throne of this earth before this earth can pass away. Otherwise, Satan has succeeded. And that can't be, and that won't be, because God will have a man rule on a throne on this earth before this earth passes away. Um, and that man will sit on the throne that was originally given to Adam and then given to David uh, and promised to Jesus Christ. The throne that was given to David was a microcosm of the throne given to Adam. Jesus' throne will be much bigger than just Jerusalem, it will be over the entire earth as the steward of God's creation. So in Hebrews 1, we see Christ's present state, that right now he is acting as uh, not a king, but as our priest, our high priest in heaven, and that's developed a lot throughout Hebrews, but he begins by showing where Jesus is. He's at the right hand of God on God's throne. So in Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1, we read, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Excuse me, so that points back to Adam. He is heir of all heir of all things. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He is deity and upholds all things by the word of his power. He is God. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Notice where he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He did not sit down on the throne of God. For to which of the angels, did he ever say, "You are my son"? Today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That comes again right out of Second uh, Samuel and First Chronicles. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, "And let the angels of God worship him." And of the angels, he says, "Who makes his angels winds?" and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now that was transliterated from Lord to God, that was from Yahweh to Theos, Um, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with oil of the gladness Uh, above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Um, So in the book of Hebrews, the author is uh, making an argument here for the deity of Christ, saying that he's not just an angel, which was perhaps an argument that these Jews, this Jewish congregation of Christians was being persuaded by. um, Nevertheless, he says he is God, he is the king uh, that God has promised through David, and he is the king that will sit on the throne of Adam as well, the throne of Adam over this entire earth. He is the, the inheritor of the whole world. All right, so uh, getting down to our very last few passages, we're going to contextualize this study uh, for our current study in Revelation. Uh, so we will remember in Revelation one, all the way back in January, we saw that uh, Jesus's kingdom was future. Uh, now I stressed, stressed this back then, uh, but I think now that uh, you've spent a year with me, you might understand why I was stressing this because this is a bit of a hobby horse for me. Uh, but anyways, in Revelation chapter one, verses five to six, says Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Jesus' kingdom with us as his subjects, his, uh, his, let's see, of his kingdom and his priests um, we are not yet functioning and ruling in that kingdom together with him that when he is in that kingdom we will also be ruling with him and uh, you can look at revelation 2 and revelation 3 and i've got a couple different uh, videos on on those and how that breaks down actually uh i think it was two sundays ago or three sundays ago i i preached on the uh the training for reigning uh, the, the church in the millennial kingdom. Uh, so I, I can post a link to our group chat after. Uh, anyways, um, Revelation chapter 5, uh, which we did in the spring, uh, shows that Jesus Christ was worthy. If you remember, John was weeping because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Well, the one found worthy to open the scroll was who, but uh, the uh, lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. So let's read Revelation 5 now with our uh, context here of the Davidic covenant. It says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, and that we identified as the title deed to earth, and it was sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And why is that? It's not just because we needed a worthy man, but because we needed a worthy man who was also God from the line of David specifically. So we continue in chapter five. Uh, Then I began to weep, that is John, uh, greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders, that is one of the elders of the church, said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, uh, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book And its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Um, I guess I have stuff I could say about that, but I'd say check out my sermon from last Sunday because I talked a lot about uh, the need to approach God on the basis of a blood sacrifice. Um, For us, that's Jesus Christ, and for John, standing in the throne room of God, we see the Lamb of God standing in the throne room of God, having been slain for our sins, and you could look at Hebrews 9 as well to see the necessity of cleansing the holy instruments as well as the, uh, or in the same fashion as the temple instruments were cleansed by blood. Um, Anyways, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, Jesus Christ was found worthy to take the title deed of this earth. So in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, we see the worship that breaks out in heaven. And I know I quote this one just about any time we talk about Revelation 5, but I think this is one of my favorite passages in scripture. So we're going to look at it again. Uh, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and peoples and nation. And uh, keep in mind that that merism here is speaking directly of you, the believer in him, that his blood purchased for God uh, you. So you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. They will reign upon the earth, future tense, And it's from the mouth of of these worshipers, I believe. I didn't keep it in there. I think at this point, it's the four living creatures and the 24 elders who are worshiping. Uh, All right, jumping forward here to Revelation 19, where we see the live action uh, return of Jesus Christ to this earth as the king. Um, It says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. That is his name. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So think here of Isaiah 9. Remember, uh, a child will be given to you, uh, that's been fulfilled, uh, but that he would rule the nations with a rod of iron, that has not yet been fulfilled because it takes place after revelation 19 and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of god the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords and we see his rule in revelation 20 remember revelation 20 verses 1 through 10 depict the millennial kingdom now that is a very short chunk of verses Um, And that's not because it's unimportant, but because the chunk of verses dedicated to the millennial kingdom in the Old Testament is so incredibly vast that we have no need to repeat it here uh, in Revelation 20. But the information that we receive in the rest of Revelation 20, uh, up until the midpoint of of Revelation 22, is brand new information that has never been revealed about what takes place after the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, So don't fret that uh, we only get 10 verses in Revelation, because once we get there in the text, I'm going to do a special section just about what the Millennial Kingdom is, because we don't get much detail in Revelation. We only get the details that are new. Uh, Anyways, In Revelation 20, verse 6, we see his rule in the millennial kingdom. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in this first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So in his millennial kingdom, we, along with the faithful of Israel, will be ruling over the earth together with him. And this is part of the information that was not revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, In Revelation 22, we get information about the eternal state, um, the merging of the throne of Jesus Christ, the throne of David, with the throne of God, uh, that David's kingdom truly will be an eternal kingdom even after this earth passes away. Um, So in Revelation 22, verses 3 to 5, we read, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need for the lamp, for the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So our reign, as well as his, does not end after 1,000 years but it is an eternal reign. But notice in verse three, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Uh, This uh, many Bible students call the merging of the throne of God with the throne of David, but notice that they are distinct. Jesus Christ right now is sitting at the right hand of God's throne. He has not yet taken the throne of this earth, which is the throne of David. Um, Continuing verses 16 to 20, these are the last words that Jesus spoke to John, the last recorded words of Jesus Christ uh, before his second coming. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The last thing he wanted to stress to us was that he is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And that is important because that is the throne he is coming to take uh, after the tribulation period. That is the hope of the future that we have to look forward to. And his final command, or his final statement here in verse 20, he who testifies to these things, that is Jesus, says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So with that, that is the Davidic covenant, And I want to uh, plug something we're doing here at Tacoma Grace Bible Church before we go. uh, We are going through all four Gospels um, over six months on Tuesday nights from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. And the focus is the life of Messiah, the King. Uh, So uh, I would encourage you all to come. A lot of the information that, uh, that I present in our revelation studies when we talk about the uh the uh gospels is getting ready for this class so some of the stuff i did in matthew tonight is uh from the research that i have prepared for for doing this class so if you're in the area um i think it would be an excellent opportunity for us to meet in person it is going to be an in-person uh class here in east tacoma so uh if you'd like more details, there's details at uh, TacomaGraceBC.org.